Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest Brexit shenanigans in the House of Commons vote, David Davis's leaf briefing to the city, and of course, the Supreme Court appeal. To do all this, I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's finest political minds, George Parker, our political editor, chief political commentator Philip Stevens, legal correspondent Jane Croft, and our legal commentator David Allen Green. Thank you all for joining. Brexit finally arrived in the House of Commons this week. On Wednesday, there was an opposition day debate from the Labour Party and it was the first opportunity for MPs to vote on whether Article 50 should be triggered and the process of leaving the EU commence. It was initially meant to be an effort by Labour to force the government to publish its Brexit plan, but it was then outmaneuvered by the government who used it to force the opposition MPs to support its timetable. Now, this may have been a non-binding vote that doesn't mean anything legally, but it did represent the first opportunity for MPs to have their say. They overwhelmingly voted for Brexit. So George Parker, how significant do you think this was? Only 91 MPs, the vast majority of them Scottish nationalists and some from the Labour Party, voted against the Brexit motion. And it really sort of confirmed there's not that much appetite in the Commons to stymie Brexit. I think that's true. And of course, the Eurosceptic papers were very excited about this vote, saying it was a historic moment. I think the truth is that MPs were never going to take on the will of the people as expressed in the referendum. I think Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, called this a fantasy castle being erected by Eurosceptics. But on another level, it is a remarkable occasion you know, to have the House of Commons overwhelmingly vote for Britain to leave the European Union. It's, you know, think back when Philip and I first met back in the 90s, you know, the idea of leaving the European Union was a completely fringe activity, maybe a view held by a handful of MPs. And even you know, looking back a year or two ago, The idea that nearly 500 MPs would vote for Britain to leave the European Union, that is a remarkable thing. And when we look at the breakdown instead of these 91 MPs, you had all of the Scottish nationalists who tend to vote as a bloc and they were representing Scotland. There's only one Scottish constituency that voted leave. So you can arguably say they were representing their people. Then you had these 23 Labour MPs, of which the vast majority again voted remain constituencies. So it all seemed to be pretty straightforward, but we've got this betrayal narrative that has kicked off since then, which I personally think is a very worrying thing of certain newspapers and the Conservative Party targeting targeting these 91 saying you are going against the will of the people and I think that's quite a toxic thing. Yes it could be and it's sort of an extension of the High Court judges being labelled enemies of the people for doing their job. I think the Scottish National Party MPs are in a different category. They view Scotland as a separate country and they're representing the views of their country. I think for the 23 or so whatever it was Labour MPs who voted against the activation of Article 50 I think they will be targeted for sure by the Tory press. I think they will hope that by representing the views of their constituents that will keep them safe. But, you know, I think, to be honest, the House of Commons did vote by, I think, a margin of six to one in favour of having this referendum. We are part of the United Kingdom. I think for Labour MPs to actually turn their back on the verdict of that referendum, having voted in the Commons to have the referendum, I think that does put them in a quite a precarious position. 
Philip Stevens, what did you make of the vote? And obviously, as we said, that it's not a binding thing. So they're not now saying we will absolutely have to activate Article 50 by the end of May 2017, which was part of the motion. But it still seems politically significant and does sort of box the government into doing that. Well, yes, I think it is obviously significant. But as George said, given that we had a referendum voted to leave, it was seemed pretty obvious that most Labour MPs, the overwhelming number, were always going to vote to put that into practice. What really surprises me about the sort of rather vitriolic campaign being waged by parts of the media, also by some Tory MPs, and I've never quite really understood this, is that the Leave side won... But it's behaving in many respects as if it lost. Instead of being sort of full of optimism and enthusiasm about the new Britain outside the EU, the Leave Camp seems to spend most of its time looking for traitors, people willing, wanting to subvert the will of the people. Instead of celebrating their victory, they're fearful, I think, that somehow the moment will be lost. And I think they're probably underneath all this. There probably is a reason, which is... As time passes, it's going to look harder and harder and more and more costly to actually turn this referendum vote and now this parliamentary vote into practice. And we're seeing that, I think, in the fearfulness of the Leave campaign. And also we're seeing it, and again this week, in the clear differences within the cabinet with Theresa May having to slap down cabinet ministers for getting out of line. You know, Brexit was not an event. It's a process, and it's a process that's going to last at least for the next two, but probably for the next five to ten years. And I think the people who won the referendum are now fearful that when people see the costs, maybe, maybe they'll just think again. They spent so many years as insurgents against the establishment, you know, as George said. Brexit was a very fringe activity and even Euroscepticism was a relatively fringe thing. Um, Where they are now essentially the establishment, I think it was Tim Farron who said this week, we are now the new rebels or something like that. And that's the idea. They feel they've got to keep on fighting for it because they think that MPs are against them. They certainly think judges are against them. And I think that, you know, it is still quite divisive. Yes, and I think the case in the Supreme Court, or not the case, but the reaction of the Leave campaigners to it, rather sort of underscores what Mrs Thatcher said about referendums, that if you're not careful, I think she was quoting Atkey actually, that if you're not careful, they become the device of demagogues and dictators. And you get into this, the will of the people. We do live in a representative democracy. We do elect our MPs to make decisions for us. It was, as I said, clear that Parliament would not try to override the referendum decision. But again, we come back to this central point that the country has voted to leave the European Union. It hasn't said what sort of exit it wants and what sort of relationship it wants after we've left. There is going to be a very long and I think in times bitter political battle in this country about the shape of the agreement in parallel with what's going to be a very difficult negotiation with the rest of the EU. So this is going to consume energy, attention and passion for some time yet. 
And we saw that, George, with this um, leaked letter published by the Financial Times that David Davis, sort not letter, a briefing note, um, David Davis had a meeting with people from the City of London in mid-November. And I think his thinking could have changed since then. But this leaked memo sort of essentially said a very hardline approach. Not really interested in a transition deal. He seems to be thoughtful and listening, but quite firm in that. And that underlines Philip's point that there is a risk that Britain takes this very hardline approach Europe takes a very hardline approach and it all just clashes in a very unconstructive way when talks begin. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a danger that the whole thing gets deadlocked immediately and people take positions that they can't then retreat from. Uh, you know, it's very hard for a French president to make concessions in that kind of negotiation. Very difficult for Theresa May to make concessions for the reasons we've just been discussing. So it's got to be handled carefully. David Davis, plainly on the central issue of whether you need a transitional deal to smooth the passage of Britain out of the European Union. He's sceptical about it. He's worried that a transitional deal could become a permanent deal. The one thing I would say, and you alluded to it there, I think that his position is changing. There is certainly a view in the Treasury that David Davis is becoming more attuned to the needs of the City of London. And the other thing I think you have to do is you have to strip out some of the things that David Davis is saying, even in private meetings at the moment, with what he really thinks. So when David Davis makes the apparently preposterous suggestion that he'll be kind to the EU if they come on bended knee and ask for this transitional deal, well, people in Brussels say, well, that's ludicrous. And maybe it is ludicrous. But the thing is, David Davis does know a little bit about European negotiations. And the worst position to be in Brussels is to be demandeur, as they say, the person who's going and asking for this. So by not making it a central part of his the British negotiating position, in a way, he's trying to make sure that other things are still on the table. So there's a lot of negotiating and boxing and coxing going on. Yeah, I think also he has a sort of a dry sense of humour, and I think there may have been a little of that in it. As it happens, I was part of last weekend with David Davis at a meeting in Seville with Spanish politicians, and he was sounding at that meeting a little bit more flexible about transitions, although he clearly isn't on the same page as the Prime Minister, who my understanding is would quite like what's called a long Brexit, i.e. a long transition period. So any disruption or the big disruption comes after the 2020 election rather than before it. But even though I think at the Spanish event, uh, David Davis took a sort of a rather softer line and the Spanish are our friends in Europe, if you put Gibraltar to one side. <laughs> but the overwhelming impression was of two sides. The Spanish foreign minister was there and others, two sides talking past each other. And it was really quite hard, even in this friendly, relaxed environment with people with a glass of wine or two in their hands to think to see how these two sides were actually going to meet. If the Brexit deal still looks a bit up in the air, George, then if we look towards the Labour Party, they're in a bit of a mess. Because I think one of the things that struck me from the Commons vote, there was just one Conservative MP who voted against the motion, which is a remarkable testament to, I think, both the party's whipping ability and the party's ability to push together when it needs to. Uh Ken Clark has obviously spent 40 years taking pro-EU positions, and I think it would be a grave disappointment to us all if he resiled from that. And it was brilliant to see him sticking to that, and he's obviously retired time at the next election so I don't think he has to worry about being labelled a betrayer 
But on the Labour Party, George, first of all, Keir Starmer put forward this motion to try and force the government to show its hand. The government then came back and said, OK, we'll go along with this if you sign up to our timetable. So it was not really a win for either side, in my view. I think that, you know, Labour, yes, got the government to post its plan and we have no idea what that plan could be. It could be a side of A4 for all we know. But then the vast majority of Labour MPs are now having to back Theresa May's timetable. And I've picked up a fair bit of unrest from Labour MPs saying, what are we doing going along with the Prime Minister's plan? Shouldn't we having be having more scrutiny of this? Yeah, well, you said at the start that you thought the Labour had been outmaneuvered somewhat by the government. I think that's a correct view. I mean, certainly there were some negative headlines for Theresa May about the fact that she'd had to concede the principle that she would publish a plan in inverted commas before she starts the negotiations. But it's fairly clear, and I think Labour MPs twig this very quickly, that this plan could be next to nothing. You know, In fact, we were referred back to things that Theresa May has already said in the House of Commons as representing her plan. And even if there were to be a white paper, which you know that could be further demands for that, well, it could easily be a two-page white paper. She will not be forced to do anything she doesn't want to do ahead of the negotiation. And as you say, you ended up with a situation where she won all the headlines on the day of the vote itself because you've got Jeremy Corbyn and most of the Labour Party trooping through the lobbies with Conservative MPs voting for Britain to leave the European Union. I don't think Theresa May will publish a comprehensive plan for the terms of our departure, partly because the present intention anyway is to write a rather short letter to Donald Tusk. This is the Article 50 letter. This is the Article 50 letter, which will instantly be leaked. But I think the plan at the moment is to keep that reasonably short and still pretty broad. But I think that here, although Labour was sort of perhaps tricked this week, Theresa May basically has got herself in a position where each time she has to be pushed and pushed. She could have right at the beginning of this process simply have said, we're going to have a parliamentary vote and I'll produce a green paper, white paper or or whatever. So I don't think this has been a great victory for Theresa May. Yeah, and if the other thing Labour's had this week, of course, George, is the Sleaford by-election, which was a result at Conservative MP who resigned over the government's Brexit strategy. And it was always going to be a big Conservative victory, and it was. But what was most interesting is that Labour fell from second to fourth place, getting just 3,000-odd votes, while UKIP bounced into second place. Now, obviously, way behind the Conservatives, so no way they were going to win it. But... Labour MPs have been saying on Friday that where's our position on Brexit? This is a Brexit heartland seat where we had nothing to say. And if this is what's going to come at the next general election, it's pretty worrying. And this came on the same day that Labour's post on it hit its lowest point since 1983. And it comes the week after they lost, the Labour Party lost its deposit in the Richmond Park by-election. And I think it does bode quite ill for the Labour Party because, as you say, they've got nothing really to say on Brexit. And you have the situation where Vernon Coker, speaking for the party on the day of the the result, was saying, well, the problem was that we wanted to talk about hospitals, but everybody else wanted to talk about Brexit and we weren't getting our message across. Well, if you've got nothing to say on the thing that people are actually talking about, you can't change the electorate. So you've got to change your message. And the problem they've got, of course, is that they are riding two different horses, aren't they? That in their urban big city seats, people are basically for the European Union and in those big white working class areas in the North, Midlands and South Wales, places like that, people are against. And Jeremy Corbyn has no clear message. You know, on the European Union, 
He doesn't like the single market, which is the thing that most people seem to rather like. And he does like untrammeled immigration, which what lots of Labour voters in the North don't like as, as well. So I think they have to change their message, but they also have to change their leader. I was talking to someone in the shadow cabinet the other day who said, basically, the Labour Party can be well led by a strong traditional working class Labour leader from perhaps from the Midlands or north of England. Or it could be well led by a TOF, as it has been many times in the post-war period. What it can't be is led by a very left-wing Islington liberal. That's the problem. And then the last point you feel about, I think the key question is, can Labour get through this Brexit period? Because as George was saying, you've always had this, you know, it was the Hampstead-Humberside thing, connection. And the party, you know, Tony Blair managed to hold that together throughout the time they were in government. But... With Brexit, are they going to have to decide one way or another? Are they pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit? Are they pro-immigration, anti-immigration? The, the message has been all over the place. You've had Diane Abbott, the Shadow Home Secretary, saying Labour doesn't want caps on migration and we can't out UKIP. UKIP, on the flip side, you've got people like Sir Keir Starmer, the Briggs, Shadow Brexit Secretary, saying we do need limits and Andy Burnham on that side as well. And those two things seem... How do you bring those two together? Well, I think you, as I said, you need a new leader. It's perfectly possible construct a policy which respects the referendum result but at once tackles the government on the key economic issues of Brexit and has a tough but liberal line on immigration. It is not that difficult to do. You can control immigration while still, as I think the government will turn out to do, letting a large number of people in. But with this leadership, collective leadership, the party's lost I would still bet that there'll be another leader by the time of the next general election. Very last point there, George. Mr Corbyn is as secure as ever, despite the fact he's been totally invisible, apart from popping up PMQ, never really seems to appear much in newspapers or TV and has had nothing to say about either of the by-election results, but doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, no, he doesn't. And actually, I think lots of Labour MPs are rather pleased with the fact that he's disappeared from view since being re-elected Labour leader. But there is a, as Philip says, there's a a vacuum of policy, a vacuum of leadership at the top of the Labour Party. And, you know, what we saw in Sleaford was only a small sign of it. But at the moment, the party is drifting towards electoral oblivion. Across the road from the House of Commons, there was plenty of Brexit action in the Supreme Court. The government's appeal to the High Court decision in November on Article 50 took place this week, with the 11 Supreme Court judges in the spotlight over whether Parliament needs to pass legislation to trigger the process of leaving the EU. Now, we won't know the result of this until January, but it's certainly been a very significant moment for the Supreme Court and for generally our Constitution and what it all means. So, Jane Croft, you have been covering the hearing for the and having watched many parliamentary debates over my time, I'd say the Supreme Court can't quite match to the excitement of a parliamentary debate. So how was it? And can you just give us a summary of the arguments that were made by both sides? Yeah, sure. I mean, the Supreme Court hearings are, I mean, some people have likened them to Oxbridge Law Seminars. They are literally questions of law which are being forensically examined by the judges. So, I mean, the arguments for, for Gina Miller and co were quite similar to how they were in the High Court. 
they're basically arguing that the government cannot exercise its prerogative powers to trigger Article 50. Now, if you remember, prerogative powers are the residue of powers once held by the monarch. The High Court sort of ruled that the government couldn't use these powers and it needed a vote by MPs. So the government case was put slightly differently in the Supreme Court. They were arguing that the prerogative powers to leave the EU are not some sort of ancient relic, but they're a contemporary necessity. They say that the government sort of has the power under prerogative powers to make and unmake treaties on the international plane. And from that flows rights into domestic law. So they're arguing they can use these powers to trigger Article 50. So David Allen Green, there were some criticisms of the government's case in the High Court. How did it change in the Supreme Court in both the contents and the way it was presented? I think stepping back for a moment, this was, is the most significant constitutional case of a generation. Usually constitutional cases have one discrete constitutional issue, the power of government, the power of parliament, the power of the courts, the relationship between a citizen and the state, devolved assemblies and so on. This case bundles all those issues together. It covers the relationship between a Crown and Parliament and the Crown and Parliament and the devolved assemblies and the rights of individuals. Almost every constitutional issue you can think of has a role in this case. At first instance, in the High Court, the Miller case only dealt with some of those issues, the ones between Parliament and prerogative and the role of both in respect of a citizen. By appealing that decision to the United Kingdom Supreme Court, it opened the case out to devolution issues. So two references came from Northern Irish courts who were dealing with Article 50, and the Scottish government instructed the Lord Advocate to come and attend to make representations on behalf of the Scottish government. And so whatever the outcome of the hearing this week, it cannot be just a rerun of the Miller case at first instance because of all these further devolution issues. So the government's case on the Miller points in the High Court were broadly the same. I don't didn't see any great change in content and very little change in emphasis. But it was the case of the others involved in the hearing which changed, because not only had you got those points from the High Court, there's a whole range of other points. And significantly, when the government gave its reply, it went straight to the devolution points. So it's also been a big moment for the Supreme Court this week because I think it's a relatively new body. It's very key to remember. And this was the first time there were 11 judges had sat together. I believe they actually had to expand the room, Jane. But there's been a lot of confusion about what this case was and wasn't about. And there's been articles from the Eurosceptic press and Eurosceptic politicians saying this is somehow trying to undermine the Brexit result or halt it or what have you. I think I'm right in safely saying that was absolutely not the case and there was no reference to that in court at all this no, week. No, I mean, in fact, the only reference was yesterday when Lord Newberger, the president of the court, said this case was not about trying to overturn the referendum result. He made that absolutely clear. It's about legal issues and who has the authority to trigger Article 50. So about that very narrow legal question. But as David said, it brings in lots of other issues as well, particularly the devolution stuff, which I thought was actually the most interesting thing this week. The devolution issues changed this case fundamentally from the rerun of the Miller case. As regards Brexit as a whole, there was nothing in the case which would stop Brexit. It's a question of how to do it. How to do something very difficult, very complex, on a sound legal basis. Many people who are in favour of Brexit should appreciate this. If you're sincerely in favour of Brexit, you want it to be done as well as possible, as legally soundly as possible. 
And that is what the court is deciding. Obviously, there are people who are against Brexit who are shouting for one side, but they'll be disappointed if what turns out is Brexit is shoved on a sound, sustainable basis. This is a point you've made in your pieces for the FT, and we made in an FT editorial this week, that the lesson of this whole business should be that the government should be clear and open about its Brexit strategy. Now, it could have been at the beginning they weren't actually sure of the strategies. They said nothing until they knew what they were doing. But it's become quite apparent that this kind of way of doing it, of going behind closed doors, is not going to be helpful because Brexit is complicated enough as it is. It doesn't need further confusions. It just needs a lot more forethought. On one level, what happened this week was a grand, glamorous clash of basic constitutional principle. But on another level, it was just because of incompetence by the government and MPs. Had they had the writ to add a couple of amendments to the 2015 Referendum Act, none of this would have happened. There would have been no case to fight because it would have been clear what the consequences of a Leave vote was. But that lack of thought is endemic in the whole of Brexit problem. It's improvised. And one good thing which will come out of this result is the government will be forced to take this a lot more seriously and be more practical. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of debate in court this week about the 2015 Referendum Act and what it meant and what it didn't mean. I mean, the whole point made by one of the council, I think he was Richard Gordon for the Welsh Government, was about, you know, whether or not prerogative power you know, the Referendum Act, was it anything to do with the issues of this case? I mean, he said the 2015 Referendum Act, the statute had died, its purpose had been fulfilled, it didn't give any new prerogative powers to trigger Article 50. But obviously the government is saying there's a sort of issue of silence, that the 2015 Referendum Act actually allowed prerogative powers were implicit in that, and it allowed the government to use prerogative powers to trigger Article 50. Was this sloppiness by the government in the referendum bill or was it on purpose? I have to say, I think it was just, and I think one of the council made this point yesterday, nobody expected that the referendum act or the, would go into this level of detail. Nobody expected there to be a leave vote. That's the point one of the council actually made. So I don't think people actually thought about it, the drafts people bringing this statute through Parliament. Yes, never ascribe to forethought what can be explained by lack of thought. But one curious feature of this case, which Jane has just mentioned, was silence. Most litigation is about what words mean. What the case this week was ultimately about was a lack of words. A lack of words in the EC Act of 1972, which brought the United Kingdom into the European communities, has no mention of what to do on with prerogatives. So you're arguing from silence. The Referendum Act has nothing in there about what happens afterwards which in contrast to other referendum legislation, which do have provisions. And so both sides in court were trying to persuade the justices what the silence meant. What could you infer from what the situation was? And no, no lawyer likes arguing from silence. But the only reason why both sides were arguing from silence is because the legislature and the executive had not thought through this stuff and they put this legislation on the statute books. So... From my understanding, Jane, that obviously we had this motion we talked about earlier in the podcast in the House of Commons. That was an opposition day motion, which is not binding legally. Politically, it might sort of force Conservative or Labour MPs into a certain direction. Now, we'll see what the outcome of this is in January, but it would look quite likely that if the High Court is upheld, that the government will have to introduce a piece of primary legislation, that means a bill, saying that, you know, what came out of the court about that in the terms of the arguments made and what 
might that bill contain? Would it be simple? Could it be detailed? Or do we not know? Well, the government sort of lawyer, James Eady, did say it could be a one-line act. So a very short bill. But he did mention it could be politically complicated. I mean, there's obviously the issue about amendments, what might be tacked onto it, might, what might not be tacked onto it. And there's a whole issue as well about devolution. What's going to be said in the Supreme Court ruling about devolution? Does this question have to go before the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly or Northern Irish Assembly? There's these whole sort of issues which have been raised in this case which have never been raised in the High Court. Yeah, but... Broadly speaking, there are three possible outcomes. Outcome number one is Theresa May wins. She can do this by prerogative. Outcome two is that, no, it's a matter for Parliament, either by a short one-clause bill or perhaps something a bit more extensive, but it can be cured by an act of Parliament. The third outcome, which is where May would lose badly as opposed to just lose, is Parliament plus devolution. And it's not so much that the devolution, devolved governments would have a formal veto, it's just that they would have to be properly involved. And if that's the case, that makes it a lot more complicated and a lot more time-consuming, and you can kiss goodbye to the March deadline. Because that would, in the case, mean that the Scottish Hollywood Parliament would have to pass it, of which there is an SNP majority there, and the Northern Ireland Assembly, so it could all draw it out much further. May involve formal passing, but it would certainly involve some sort of involvement, even if it was not a formal pass or fail vote. Any opening up of Article 50 process to devolution will slow the process right down. When you say slow down, how slow down are we talking? You would not be able to keep the March deadline. And then finally, I'm going to ask you both the question I'm sure you'll be absolutely delighted to go for, which is, based on what you've heard, what would your thought be on what the Supreme Court is going to say in January, Jane? I think the government will lose again, personally. I think that the James Eady's closing speech, which is normally, closing speeches are quite important. Often cases can be won and lost on those. I think it was quite basic. It didn't end with the flourish. It got bogged down in a lot of constitutional issues. And I just kind of think the case wasn't made. You can never absolutely predict how a court will decide, but if I was still a government lawyer, I would be telling the government to brace itself for defeat and to get on with putting the bill in place. Well, we can come back to this in January and see what happens. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. 